Amen. You may be seated. Today's our final uh, sermon in this series called Desert Trees, and if your Bible, you can turn with me to the book of Esther, or the text is printed for you on pages 12 and 13 in your bulletin. Now, you all know a little bit about the backstory, I hope. We're in Persia, about 480 years before Jesus. The king is a, a king named Ahasuerus. In chapter 1, he throws an enormous feast for all of his nobles. It's like months of feasting. And at the feast, he asks his queen, Queen Vashti, to come and stand before his nobles. For whatever reason, she says, nope. Ahasuerus is extremely upset about this, being the chauvinist that he is, and he deposes Vashti from being queen. Um, and threatens men in the c- country that they ought to kind of like treat, get a handle on their wives. You know. um, and so then some time passes, and as this chapter opens, Ahasuerus has finally calmed down, gotten off of his kind of high horse a little bit, and he remembers Vashti, and he wishes for a queen. And so he's gathered all the beautiful young virgins of the provinces of Persia into the capital in Susa, and he's like getting them all dolled up to see which will be his queen. And we pick up in uh, chapter 2, verse 5. Now, there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is, Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther was also taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go in to King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was a regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Shazgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her, and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken into King Ahasuerus, into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. 
And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast poor, that is, they cast lots before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they don't keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took a signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. And the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and an edict according to all that Haman had commanded was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of Adar, 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. This is the word of the Lord. Minister in our hearts now by the Spirit, we pray, Father, as we hear this in Jesus' good name. Amen. So what we've been exploring in this uh, seven-part series is the idea that being a Christian in the modern world is it's a bit like being a tree out in a desert. It really sucks Christian faith dry, but not in the way that you might think. It does not do that by directly attacking what we believe. I mean, that might happen sometimes, but if that actually happens, I think most of you would find that kind of stimulates your faith. What really dries out Christian faith in the modern world is that what, the, what we believe is just de-centered, entirely de-centered. Because what is central in modern life is personal happiness through, through personal choice. You're supposed to be personally happy. That's obviously what life is about. And only you know how to get there. You know it works for you. So by personal choice, find personal happiness. That's what life is about. And that emphasis, that centralized thing, obviously moves God way out to the margins. Now, he's not entirely removed. I mean, look, God can be useful, right? As you're seeking personal happiness, God might help you. But if he doesn't, he's not relevant to what life is really about. Now, we, you know, we kind of want the man upstairs to be there if we need something. You know, we kind of want a nice grandfatherly deity who will show up when I kind of need, you know, something. But the idea in the modern world of our lives fully revolving around God, I just don't think that computes anymore. Is that how your daily life feels? Does your daily life in the modern world feel like it revolves entirely around God? That's not how it feels because of our priorities. But as we've seen, God's people have faced a lot of deserts in their history places where they have had zero props for their faith, no word from the Lord, no great strong community around them to help them. And even if we can't always relate to their exact circumstances in these ancient situations, it is really encouraging to watch fellow believers, people who, like us, believed in God, 
watch them in their desert, and see them actually flourish. And we've come now to the last of the desert stories for this series, a very familiar one, the story of Esther. And I'd like to suggest that in an important way, Esther's desert really shines some light on our modern desert and shows us in a, in a unique way what our ultimate response to the modern desert really should be. And I want to begin by just talking for a moment about Esther's empire and ours. Esther's empire and ours. Now, Esther lived in a time when there were pawns and there were powers. Esther and her uncle Mordecai are little Hebrew pawns. They are nobodies. They're part of a captive people in an overlord empire. And the power of the time, quite obviously, is King Ahasuerus, who is also known in history as Xerxes I. Again, we're about 480 years before Christ. And back of Xerxes I, or Ahasuerus, lies the massive Persian Empire that lasted about two centuries from around 540 B.C. to down around 330 B.C. And what is really interesting, this is one of the places in the Bible where histories outside the Bible really fill in kind of the international scene that envelops this little biblical story of Esther. How many of you guys have seen the movie 300? You know that big, bad Persian king dude? Kind of cartoonish he really is, but you know, that's Xerxes. That's this Ahasuerus, eventually Esther's husband. And in fact, uh, Herodotus talks about a huge gathering of uh, Xerxes' warlords prior to his Greek campaign. You know, he, he gets them together and he kind of, you know, does a bunch of pep talk for a, a while. And then they march off toward Greece by land and sea. And for four years, they go out and try to, you know, uh, take over Greece. They are thrashed on the seas and land. King Leonidas of Sparta being just one example of the Battle of Thermopylae. And uh, it is quite possible that this feast in chapter one is that meeting of the overlords, uh, the, the warlords, and, and that after Ahasuerus has kind of had his whooping in, in the Greek campaign, he comes home, and now he like kind of wants a woman, which is why we're in this, you know, seeking his queen in this harem full of girls in, in which we find Esther. So there's all this kind of going on. This is real history, you know, it's attested outside the Bible. But what is interesting about the Bible is it talks about this. It, you know, you and I live in a kind of scientific age. We tend to approach things very scientifically, very analytically, and we look at history, and what we see is factual history. Like, this person on this date did X, and that's fine. You know, history is facts. Many of you sat through insufferably long, boring classes on facts of history and history classes. The, history is factual, but the Bible adds another layer to the facts, it, it totally treats these things as historical facts. This really happened. You could have seen it happen if you'd been there. But the Bible then adds another layer that I'm going to call the, a kind of mythological lay, lay, layer. Because, for example, in Daniel's prophecy, Persia, which was a, a historical empire, is pictured in Daniel chapter 7 as a devouring bear. That's clearly mythical. Uh, in chapter 8, the same empire, Persia, is depicted as a charging ram with a big horn, and it's kind of thrusting out in all directions, mythical depictions. And then Daniel does something way weirder than even that. So you have the factual, you have the mythological images, and then you have another whole layer. Daniel, later in his book, opens up just a little window on what's going on in the heavenly realms, and behind these mythical beasts, the bear and the ram and so on, there, is, there are these shadowy 
angelic princes that are moving in the heavenly realm, and they are seeking through these empires to thwart what God is doing in the world. There is actually an angelic prince of Persia. There will later be an angelic prince of Greece, as the angel Gabriel opens this up to Daniel. Now, I want to ask you guys, what's going on with all of that? Kind of the mythical descriptions and then this weird, you know, the prince of Persia is doing his thing. What's going on with all of that? Well, this is what I think is going on. If you read your Bible carefully from the very earliest histories, you will notice the Bible points out something curious about things that are fashioned by human hands. And this is what it points out. When we take something we have fashioned, we have created, we have put it together, we take a work of our hands, and we start to invest that work of our hands with what I will call worshipful hope. We take that work of our hands and we say, now this is going to give us security. This is going to give us prosperity. It could be money, a military, a government, tools, weapons, whatever. But we take something we have fashioned, we say, now this, this is where we find security and prosperity. The Bible shows us in its histories that when you take something, we humans take something we have made and we do that, that thing we have made starts to change. That thing we have made starts to take on a life of its own and it begins to act upon us. The more we make this thing we have made, we make it out to be what only God can be. We start to put worshipful hope and trust in this that belongs to God alone. The Bible tells us the more we do that, we look at something we've made and we're like, this will kind of fill the God-sized hole in our hearts. The Bible says that as you do that, actually spiritual powers begin to work through that thing to delude your mind and dominate your life. So that instead of this thing you have made being an extension, a tool of our human dominion in the world, like we make stuff to help us rule the world, actually it's reversed, and this thing we have made begins to rule over us. In the Apostle Paul's words, this thing we have fashioned becomes part of a system of principalities and powers that defy God and subjugate human beings. The obvious example of this, of course, is a religious idol. If you, if you carve a block of stone and you say, this will give rain, this will give crops, this will make our you know, animals give birth, this will protect us from our enemies... The Bible says that at the exact same time, a religious idol is a human creation. Humans made it, and in a sense, it's nothing. And it, at the exact same time that it is a human creation, it is also, Paul tells us, a conduit of demonic influence and oppression, so much so that he tells the Corinthians, if you go into the temple of an idol and you eat dinner there, you are in fellowship with demons. Even though he says in a chapter or so earlier, an idol's nothing, it's not a real god, they're both true, but it's not just religious idols where we see this weird thing with the works of our hands. In the centuries before Christ, geopolitical empires like Persia were, on one hand, human 
structures. They were human governments, like Herodotus writes about them. And at the exact same time that they were human creations and human structures, they, these geopolitical empires were used by spirit princes to dominate human lives. Under Persia, for example, Persia dominated its subjugated peoples. It dominated their religion because you needed to worship the gods of the empire. It dominated their imagination because your worldview now centered around the empire. It dominated their moral lives because Persia was the final authority. It dominated their bodies by violence. And the challenge for God's people living under empires like Persia was how to honor what was good and, in fact, even ordained by God in the human structure. Like, God actually used these human governments and empires for his purposes, and there was, there was a need to acknowledge that. But at the same time, the thing they had to refuse to do was to worship the beast. Even as they honored what God might be doing through this human thing, they could not surrender to the demonic influence of its prince, as it were. They could not bow down to it. They had to refuse any demand from the empire that the empire be their trust, the empire be their hope, the empire be their ultimate love and loyalty. That they had to resist. And you really see it here with Uncle Mordecai in a very quiet but pointed way. He models that kind of resistance. He will not bow down to the rule of Azir. And sometimes that resistance brought these tiny little believer pawns into direct conflict with the imperial power. But before we see how that played out in Esther's case, I just want to think for a moment about what all of this that I've been describing, what it looks like in 2023 in North America. So the New Testament tells us that after Christ was raised from the dead, God raised him up into the heavenly places to sit in a position of absolute rule over the principalities and powers. All those princes now are subject to Jesus. The human dominion that we surrendered to the serpent in Eden is now restored in Christ. He is over the serpent. He is over the principalities and powers. He is now the only prince to whom the nations of the world who formerly belonged to these various princes, the nations have now been given to him as the alone prince, as his inheritance. The New Testament tells us that, and it tells us that we who are, if you can put, wrap your head around this, we, believers in Jesus, who are seated with him in the heavenly places. Now, I'll let you work on that in your own time. As those who share Christ's authority that he now has over the principalities and powers, the Bible says we wrestle still to this day, 2023, this worship service is an experience of wrestling with these now unseated principalities and powers. They do not have their former dominion, but they are absolutely loath to relinquish their grip on humankind. They want to hold on to the peoples over which Jesus has now been given rule. Now, our Lord tells us that in the end, the gates of hell will not be able to withstand the advance of the liberating news that Jesus is now Lord. As that gospel goes forth, it will liberate the captives. But you will see, obviously, in your own life and as you look at the history of the church, these principalities and powers, though unseated, are throwing up all kinds of obstructive countermeasures against the advance of the gospel. Now, I'm saying all that to say, I think, if this, I think this kind of map of the heavenly realities 
behind the factual history helps us then to see a real link between Esther's experience in Susa long ago and our experience in the modern world. There's a real link between Persia and our time. And I need to ask some of you people, please do not immediately jump to modern politics. Please don't jump from, oh, Persian Empire to 2023. Where are the you know, geopolitical empires, the political empires today? That's extremely superficial. I actually like to direct your mind in a different direction as we seek this link between Esther's experience and our link. And I want to ask you guys this question. If you had to identify something human-made, human-made in 2023, in which people put enormous hope for security and enormous hope for prosperity, and that dulls them spiritually, consumes their imaginations, shapes their moral sensibilities, shapes how they relate to each other socially, and yes, even politically, what would it be? Brothers and sisters, regardless of your political affiliations, you are already, and I am already, mastered far more than we want to acknowledge by a humanly engineered way of life. We live in a human... We, live in a, we have a way of life that is more humanly engineered than any way of life literally in the history of Homo sapiens. And this humanly engineered way of life puts us through tools of unprecedented power at the controls of pretty much every single encounter that we have with the world, including other people. You live in a way of life you don't even notice anymore how much you, and I'm not, please, I'm not talking about any particular piece of technology, so if I hear one person tell me, Dave, Pastor Miller once again hates cell phones, you have not heard me. I'm saying across the board, we live in a humanly engineered way of life from our architecture to our clothing to our automobiles to, yes, our cell phones and computers and all the rest, but we live in a humanly engineered way of life that puts us with tools of astonishing power at the controls of pretty much every encounter with creation and even every encounter with other people. And the net result of those controls, being at those controls all the time, is that modern people never actually are compelled to reverently attend or submissively receive. We almost never have an experience now without some ability to control the experience of encountering that before which we must simply take off our sandals and reverently, nakedly, without manipulation or control, just attend to it. Do you know what would happen if we saw the burning bush in 2023? we would all try to capture it, interesting language, on be real. We would lose the awe in the attempt to capture the moment. That's how modern people think. And we do not have to submissively receive. Do you know how much it makes modern people bristle, the idea of someone saying, this is a gift you would not choose and you must accept it? This limit on your life that's actually good for you, you have no choice in the matter, you must accept it because it is a gift that is being sovereignly given to you. 
Brothers and sisters, these tools, they're not going to change us. They already have changed us. The works of our hands in 2023 are so powerful. Do you know the, the, the dominant mood of our time is frustration, even offense, at anything that makes us wait, anything that demands that we change, anything that demands that we struggle, or forces us to suffer, we're frustrated because we're used to being in control. And that, I think, explains why people in 2023 are smarter than any previous generation in history, and they are at the exact same time spiritually, intellectually, emotionally, and relationally infantile. If it is not dawned on you that sitting at these controls that your engineered way of life has given to you, you are being acted upon, you are being formed. If it has not dawned on you that as you use the tools of the modern world, they are also using you, you are asleep. And please, again, I do not mean in saying this, I am not talking about what many of you jump to, which is that the political bad guys, Pastor Miller, are running a surveillance state. That's as may be. I'm talking about something actually different and deeper. You are today being formed by a system, a humanly engineered way of life that is resolutely committed to exactly one thing, and that is monetary profit. And this, this system, with its absolutely resolute pursuit of monetary profit, it knows exactly how to grip your attention. It does grip your attention. It already has your attention, and it knows how to hold your attention, and it knows how to manipulate your desires into choices that are terrible for your relationship with God and are terrible for your relationships with other people. One of the crazy things in 2023 is talking to Christians who know that this engineered way of life we're living in is terrible for our walk with God. It is absolutely brutal for our relationships, and we're still hooked. That's the power of these, this engineered way of life. We're so used to having this control. C.S. Lewis spoke so presciently in The Abolition of Man when he wrote, the power of man to make himself what he pleases. That's the dream of 2023. Yes, the power of man to make himself, his life, what he pleases actually means the power of some men to make other men what they please. And you cannot take the Bible seriously and not know that spiritual forces are at work shaping our sense of what is real, shaping our sense of what is important and valuable and worthwhile, or sometimes just dulling us into a spiritual and relational stupor. That's the imperial reality that should concern us in our time. Now, how did Esther and Mordecai respond? I want to turn from Esther's empire to Esther's God and ours. There is a, at least one striking similarity between Esther and Mordecai's story in their desert and modern life, and that similarity is this. As you read Esther, God feels totally absent. He feels irrelevant. God is not mentioned one time in the book of Esther. He's just not even on the stage, it seems. That's how it feels in our time, too. And yet what we observe in these characters is this sturdy awareness. They are the Lord's. They are Jews, and they act accordingly. Now, to be clear, it is really messy. 
It's so messy. Esther makes me squirm. In fact, it made me squirm this week as I read it. Because on one hand, these Jews, God's people, have to submit to his providence. And his providence, his obvious plan, is he has called them to live in Susa. They're not Jerusalem believers. They are Susa believers. They have to live here. And they have to serve King Ahasuerus. In Esther's case, this girl ends up being called by God to become Ahasuerus' queen. And someday if I preach on Esther, we will get into the moral awkwardness the moral awkwardness of this Jewish girl being dragged off to a Persian harem for a night with the king. It's just messy. But on the other hand, with all of this providential stuff they have to navigate, there are certain priorities these people must maintain because they know that the high king in Susa is not Ahasuerus. It is Israel's invisible God. They must not bow. And as they thread the needle of faithfulness between God's providence and the priorities of his kingdom that they cannot surrender, what you see as they do that is that God does the rest, and it is hilarious. This book is high comedy. Because sandwiched between the two accounts we just read, between Esther going to the harem and Haman rising to power, there's this short little episode I didn't read. It's a bizarre little story in which one night uh, Mordecai, overhears a couple of King Ahasuerus's eunuchs who hate him plotting to assassinate him. And he reports this, and those two eunuchs are hanged. And that little story just kind of sits like heavenly dynamite under the rest of the book, waiting to blow up. And so what happens in the rest of the story, I assume you know this, after evil Haman, who just hates, loathes the Jews because they will not bow to him, after he casts poor, uh, you picture him kind of throwing dice for like 12 months. He's throwing dice because he's trying to find the exact perfect lucky day to annihilate the Jews. And he finally picks a date and he secures Ahasuerus's decree that all the Jews in all 127 empires of the Persian, uh, provinces of the Persian Empire, they're all going to be annihilated. It then will fall to young Esther to take her life in her hands to risk entering Ahasuerus' chamber without an invitation from him, which was a death sentence, and to invite him and Haman to come to a feast that she's going to throw. She does one evening throw this feast. The king comes. Haman comes. It's a smashing success. It is a grand party. The king says, what do you want? She says, come back tomorrow night to another feast. Haman walks out of there with his chest so swelled with pride he can barely get out the door. Clearly, I am on the rise. I'm the only one invited to this audience with the king and the queen, but when he leaves that night, he sees that blasted Mordecai still unbowed, and he fumes all the way home, and he goes home, and he concocts a plan that night. He says, I'm going to go ask Ahasuerus in the morning to hang this miserable Jew from a 50-cubit high gallows I'm going to build tomorrow, and that, that helps him get to sleep. That very same night, God strikes King Ahasuerus with insomnia, and being a pompous Persian king, he decides the royal chronicles of his kingdom would be good bedtime reading, and so he has them read, and in them, he discovers this weird little story he had forgotten, which is that, yes, there was this guy named Mordecai, and I nearly got assassinated, but he reported that to me. Did we ever do anything for Mordecai? Well, no, king, we didn't. Well, we should do that. And so the next morning, Hezwaris is kind of pondering this as a uh, Haman comes running in to seek to have Mordecai hanged, and before Haman can open his mouth, Hezwaris says, um, Haman, what should I do for a man whom I delight to honor? Haman thinks, well, that would be me. You should, and he gives an idea. Well, Hezra says, that's a fantastic idea. Go do that for Mordecai. 
And we have this whole day where Haman has to march around the citadel capital of Susa, leading a giant war horse with Mordecai sitting on it, shouting in the streets, this is what the king does for the man he delights to honor. He is completely fried by the end of the day. He goes home, but he has to go that night to the second banquet with Esther and Ahasuerus. And at that banquet, as Haman comes in all flustered from his miserable day, when the king asks this time what Esther wants, she pleads for the lives of herself and her people. And the king says, who's trying to destroy you? She says, this serpent, Haman. Haman is freaked out. He leaps on the queen to plead for mercy. The king says, you're actually going to assault my queen in my very presence? They say, you know, king, it's a strange thing. There's a 50-foot-high gallows that's being built. He says, hang Haman on it. And they hang him on that 50-cubit-high gallows. There's still this decree that says the Jews will be annihilated in a few months. And so Esther and Mordecai beg that there might be a second decree giving the Jews permission to defend themselves. They do. They're given permission to defend themselves, and they do defend themselves, but they do it so generously, never rushing on the plunder, that they actually become honored and, and elevated in the kingdom. And the, the book closes in chapter 8 saying the Jews, these people who are going to be annihilated, they had light and gladness and joy and honor. And the book ends with laughter a laughter-filled feast that they call Purim. Purim, remembering the throwing of dice. And they celebrate the feast of Purim on the very days in the month of Adar in which the Jews were to be destroyed. And they celebrate the fall of the proud, wicked Haman and all of his compatriots. They celebrate it in style. And this unmentioned, invisible God uses both Esther and Mordecai's service to the empire and their steely refusal to worship the empire. Both of those he uses to preserve this people who will outlive Persia and who will seed the future of his reign on earth. With that said, I want to turn one last time to our modern desert and draw just two brief applications from Esther's story. In our time, under the principalities and powers at work, in 2023. First of all, brothers and sisters, we need to hear the laughter of the invisible God. In the apparent absence of God in our time, he seems so irrelevant. We need to tune our ears to hear the laughter of God. Because in Purim, in this Jewish celebration, we glimpse what is actually the deepest water source for faithful trees in any desert, whether it's the ancient desert of Susa or the modern desert of our own time, this is the deepest water source. Our God reigns. And he laughs at his enemies. You don't laugh at his enemies sometimes. You're all freaked out about his enemies. God just laughs as the heathen rage will defy his rule. God just, there's just, the, the echo, the, the chambers of heaven are just, they're just kind of rocking with the laughter of God. And the fruit of knowing that, the fruit of that conviction, crazily enough, as Purim shows us, beloved, it is happiness. The very thing modern people want so much, 
This is where you find it. Esther's story is not a quest to find happiness, and it's not, a, it's not a quest in which we're seeking personal happiness, and God is just kind of useful to us as we are after our own ideal of what will fulfill us and make us happy. That is not Esther's story at all. Esther's story is a quest for happiness, but it's one that begins and ends with God's invisible presence and his silent purposes. God's confident rule over the pawns and the powers, a rule which through many toils, many dangers, many tears, yes, even the cross of his own son, that rule brings ultimate gladness to our hearts as we sit at the feast and we just celebrate the laughter of God. And we need to feast and we need to celebrate that more. We need to calm down and hear the laughter of the apparently absent God, because he is not absent. But there's a second application from Esther's story. With our Father's laughter in our ears, we must take up our dominion as his children. He has called us to live in this world, this modern world, but not be conformed to it. He has called us to use every lawful thing in our time, but not to be brought under the power of anything that we use. It will be increasingly challenging. You think it's tough for you, your children? I don't even want to think about what your grandchildren are going to face. It is going to be increasingly challenge, challenging for true believers to live in a, an increasingly engineered world. And I, I personally think we've not seen the half of it yet. It'll be very challenging to live in an increasingly humanly engineered world, but not let that rule our worship, not let that rule our family lives, not let that rule our friendships, not let that rule our finances. We can refuse to bow. We can probably not do that individually. We will have to help each other. We can together prioritize the worship of the living God above everything else. We can together choose the costs of neighbor love over the comforts of engineered selfishness. We can do that together by the grace of God. We can recover a royal mindset that we are God's royal children in this world and live as the free children of God, not as the slaves and the puppets of the powers of our time, brothers and sisters. That is the call of the church in 2023. That is the call to trees in the desert. I want to learn how to do that. Can we learn how to do that together? So God help us. Amen. And we ask for that help, Lord, in Jesus' good name. Amen.